0: So open your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 2. I'm glad that Pastor Dan clarified that although this is the same passage, uh, it's not a replay of last week's message. However, it is closely related to last week's message. The fact that we are declared righteous because of our union with Christ, that's what justification means is the foundation and the motivation for living righteously. Or to put it in more theological language, justification is the foundation of sanctification. Our position is the foundation of our practice. Later in the book of Galatians, Paul addresses the ethical side or the lifestyles of those who have been justified by faith. He does the same in the book of Romans. His argument for holy living is grounded on the justifying work of Christ. Those who are pronounced righteous through faith in Christ are to practice righteousness. A new life resides in the believer. And God, the Holy Spirit, gives us a desire for holiness. He gives us a hunger for righteousness. If you turn over a few pages to uh, Colossians, chapter one, verse twenty-one. Colossians one twenty-one: You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. For what purpose? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul counters those who would excuse their sin because Romans 5.20, I think, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And a wrong conclusion, a wrong conclusion from that is, well, then I can go on sinning because I'll just get more grace. Paul strongly condemns that notion. Even though we are justified by faith, we need to concern ourselves and we will concern ourselves with holy living rather than be a slave to sin, as Romans 6 teaches, we become a slave to righteousness. There are clear ethical realities that flow from justification. Paul states the moral power of justification in Galatians 2.20. We will get there in a few moments. And because of the reality of Christ living in us, we have the power to live a life that we never had power to live before. So righteousness personalized is what we're going to look at first. And then righteousness practiced, if you just in your nose want to add a D, on to that second major port, point, you could do that, please. After speaking of justification in general terms, Paul now makes reference to his personal life and his personal relationship with Jesus. The gospel must never be thought of as something that is vague and impersonal. We are not automatically saved because Jesus died for sinners, we have to appropriate by faith, the saving effects of the death of Christ. Being raised in a Christian family is wonderful, but it does not automatically mean that we are Christians. Attending a church, evangelical or non-evangelical, is not proof in itself that we are in the family of God. One person says, none of us are justified by proxy through group involvement. It is only when we individually and personally repent of our sins and place our faith in Christ alone that we are justified. That is why Paul states in 16, so we also, referring to himself and a few others, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. So Paul is saying this important doctrine of justification which I'm talking about is just not for all you folks, it's for me also. He wanted the Galatians to understand that he was not depending on his position as an apostle, not depending on his own merit or his works to be saved. Recall that Paul was a Pharisee and he was a zealous Jewish leader before his salvation he was fully convinced that his beliefs and behavior as a Pharisee earned him the favor of God and eternal life in other words in his former life life before becoming a Christian Paul was banking on his sincerity his religion his zeal to justify him. And then he met the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. And listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. For we are dead in circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and by the Spirit of God. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have. Circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's how Paul evaluated himself when he looked at the law and looked at his life he said he was blameless now he was wrong on that point as he later found out but that's the way he was thinking now but whatever gain I had I counted as loss for the sake of Christ indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and now verse 9 be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's where he used to be. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God, from God, that depends on faith. It is not our good works that justify us. It is not our sincerity in a religious system that justifies us. It is not our association with the church that justifies us. It is not the sacraments or the ordinance of the church which justify us. It is the personal exercise of faith in Christ produced by the mighty working of the Holy Spirit that opens the door for us to receive saving faith through Jesus Christ. See, our faith is not a virtue which we inherently possess. It is not something that we create by the exercise of our wills. Ephesians 2.8 9 says that faith is a gift from God. It is God's grace that produces faith that enables us to believe. And faith that justifies is a specific, it is in Christ Jesus This means that we place our trust in a living person, not in a religious institution. We have seen that the root idea of justification is righteousness. It speaks of our legal standing with God. His divine verdict, for those who believe, is not guilty, righteous. Righteous. How can God, a righteous judge, make such a declaration on the basis of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us upon faith? Christ's perfect obedience to the law is counted as our perfect obedience to the law. The righteousness of Christ is his obedience to the law, which we have not done. But he did. And his obedience of righteousness is reckoned as ours. David expressed this like this in Psalm in Psalm twenty four Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has a clean heart and pure hands. See, none of us the, the, the kind of righteousness we need for God's approval is the kind that we don't possess. On our own. But there's one person who did possess that righteousness. Jesus. So Paul says in Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. The end of the law for righteousness. To everyone who believes. And to the Corinthians he wrote. He, God the Father, is the source of your life in Christ Jesus Whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If somehow heaven could be attained by our righteousness, we would all be arguing in heaven. Say, well, I had more righteousness than you had, and I was a Christian, you know, for 60 years, and you were a Christian for two minutes, (laughs) And I worked in the church and I was a missionary and I did good work. See, we, this comparison goes out the window. We're all in heaven, those of us who will be there because of one person, because of one gift of righteousness through our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 15, Paul says something that sounds a bit strange. We need to understand it. Therefore, therefore, I'm in the wrong book here. Go back to Galatians. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So Paul was a Jew, of course. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, we could misunderstand that for Paul saying Gentiles are worse sinners than Jews. We're Jews, we're not sinners. Gentiles are not Jews, therefore Gentiles are sinners. Or we could think that he's saying, well, Jews are less sinners, are little sinners, but Gentiles are big sinners because Gentiles never had the law law of God. We know that Paul does not mean that. He's not saying that Jews are not sinners because of what he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Who then are we Jews? Better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin I think what he is saying in Galatians 3 verse 15 he may be echoing the thinking of the Judaizers the false teachers and the Judaizers argue something like this to Paul you encourage Jews to neglect the laws of Moses you are leading Jews into sin when you do that. And Paul because you insist that the gospel is received by faith alone and does away with the works of the law, you are making Christ the agent of sin because you say this message came from Christ. So you are making Jews into sinners like the Gentiles are sinners when you preach a salvation By faith apart from works. Notice what he says in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Paul, if your message from Christ is that we can be saved by faith apart from works, and you do, I say, and we don't think you can be, you have to add the law of Moses then you are saying that Christ encouraged you to sin by neglecting the law. And you are encouraging Jews to enter into the sins, sins of the Gentiles, by neglecting the law. Well, Paul denies that he is promoting sin or that Christ is the agent of sin. All the ceremonies and laws that were practiced in the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Jesus. Therefore, the law is done away with but the Judaizers would deny this. And I think Paul will accept, if you want to call me a sinner, go ahead and call me a sinner. If you want to say that because I say you're, you're saved by faith apart from works, and you're insisting the works are necessary for salvation, and you are saying that because I leave out works, I'm encouraging people to sin, sure, you go ahead and say that. It's not true, but that's the way you're thinking. And you're also saying that because I got this message from Jesus and in your mind it's a wrong message you're making Jesus an agent of sin. But it's not sin to reject ceremonial Judaism. It is not sin to free yourself from the law in order to have fellowship with Gentiles. That's not sin. It's not sin to stop depending on rites and rituals to save you. It's not sin to cease striving to be justified by works. None of that's sin. That's the gospel. In fact, Christ is not the servant of sin. He's not the agent of sin. He's the agent of freedom. Freedom to accept the great truth of justification by faith apart from works. Freedom to love one another, freedom to have fellowship with one another, freedom for Jew and Gentile to be one in the body of Christ. There's a wonderful freedom when you accept the truth of justification by faith. So Paul's argument to the Judaizers is, yes, Christ frees us from the works of the law. No, he is not thereby a servant of sin. Then righteousness practiced, 18 to 21 Look at verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. We know that Paul's whole way of thinking underwent a radical change when he encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road and received salvation through faith. As a Pharisee, he was totally convinced, totally convinced that adherence to the law would result in salvation. And he was willing to arrest And persecute and have killed anyone who disagreed with him. But the entire system he clung to was torn down the moment when he met Jesus on the Damascus Road and rested his salvation, rested his faith in Jesus alone. So he says, The biggest mistake I could make, yes, the biggest transgression would be for me to go right back to the very thing I tore down when I entered into union with Christ. If I go back and preach law again, I am tearing down the gospel of grace. He tore down the law as a means of justification, and that's why the Judaizers were on his case. Now let us be clear that the law of Moses never taught salvation by works. People in the Old Testament were not made right with God through obedience to the commandments for a simple reason, they could not obey the commandments. They were justified by faith in God and the sacrificial system, of course, which was a type of the one sacrifice that was to come. But the Pharisees and others had misinterpreted the whole law and they made it into a long list that we can use to demonstrate our moral fitness to earn a way to heaven. So what Paul tore down was the legalistic misuse of the law. The real sin, the real transgression, is to think you're capable of climbing the ladder of the law to get To heaven. The real sin is to think you can climb the ladder of the law to get to heaven. By the way, that is what countless people in our churches are doing today. They're climbing the ladder of good works to get to heaven. And that ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. So, why would Paul or why would we return to something that doesn't save? Notice verse 19. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. In order to live to God, we have to die to the law as a way of salvation. Either you believe in Jesus Christ and are justified or you believe in the law and try to be justified. But as long as we are trying to earn our way to God by the works of the law, true salvation is impossible. So what does the law of God do? It reveals sin. It makes us aware of how guilty and sinful we really are. Romans 3.20 For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes what? Not salvation, the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans seven seven if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The law exposes the reality of sin in our life. The law defines what sin is. So the law has an important function, but that function is not to save us. We imagine that we are good people, that God accepts us, and then we are confronted with the law and we see no goodness in our hearts. The law does not give us life, it kills us. It does not save us, it condemns us. It does not lead to hope, it leads to despair. It does not take away guilt, it piles guilt upon guilt upon guilt. Galatians 3.10 Cursed is everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law to perform them. What the law says is true. And I need to hear what the law is saying to me. And when I do hear what it's saying to me, I am condemned for breaking it. But by God's grace, I also flee to Christ for mercy. Philip Newton writes, The closer you try to get to God by works, the farther you drive him from you. There are two possibilities in religion. You can think think of your ability, God's demands, in the ladder of the law that's one way or you can think of your inability God's demands and the free gift of justification by faith the old self loves to boast in its ability to climb ladders and that old self must die the law certainly serves a purpose in the plan of God it reveals sin it crushes us with guilt and we flee to the cross for mercy. And then verse 20, a verse which probably you have memorized when you were younger. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Philip Luton calls this the sweet fruit of justification. Believing in the truth of justification by faith apart from works does not result in a cavalier attitude toward sin. When properly understood, it leads to victory over sin. Some have put it this way, the fruit of sanctification is grounded in the root of justification. I have been crucified with Christ. What does this mean? When did this happen? This is where we get into mystery here. In the plan of God, when Jesus died in history on the cross, all who would become believers died with Christ in that death. He was our federal head. He represented us. So Christ has elected me, called me, died for me, rose for me, justified me, sanctifies me, preserves me, indwells me. When we have struggles in the Christian life, and I don't know about you, but I have them every day of my life. We need to pause and reflect on our union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. The reality of Christ's death at a point in history and our union with him by faith in time has results which continue to the end of our lives. In a way that exceeds at least my capacity, maybe not yours, but my capacity to understand Christ lives within me. And his presence and his power enables me to live righteously. righteously. Now, not perfectly, I still sin, but the enabling power is his presence in my life. One of the greatest mistakes we can make as Christians is to attempt to live the Christian life apart from the reality of our union with Christ. When we get our minds off Christ and what he's accomplished for us, and the fact that he is really present to strengthen and to empower and to guide us when we take our minds off that great truth we find ourselves yielding to temptation adopting the values of our world grumbling because of the stuff in life, the things of life are not going the way we think they should go and despairing because of our frequent uh, failures But when the amazing truth of verse 20 becomes a reality, the power of Jesus is released. The flesh remains weak, the flesh remains fallible, but in him we are made strong. And I'm convinced that what Paul is saying in verse 20 is the key to Christian living. And I think it's something that we can experience more than explain. What a difference verse 20 makes. Listen to John Piper. When I believe that he really died for me, then my old proud self is loved to display its power by climbing ladders of morality dies. Self-reliance, self-confidence cannot live at the foot of the cross. Therefore, when Christ died, I died. He goes on to say, a Christian is a person who has died with Christ whose pride has been slain and whose life is now mastered by Jesus. That's who a Christian is. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, in my human body, I live not by effort and and willpower and determination. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I still live, but it's a new I. It is no longer the eye that craves self-reliance and self-exaltation. It is no longer the eye that wants to control people and circumstances. It is no longer the eye that demands that I be recognized and I be appreciated and people notice me and I'm preeminent. That eye that is dead. The new eye looks away from self and trusts in Jesus. This new eye does not want to mimic the world. It resists the world. It it does not want to copy the world. It does not want to be molded by worldly desires and thoughts. The new eye receives all of its hope and strength from who Christ is and what he has done. And the new eye despairs of itself and looks for protection and motivation and direction in Jesus. What a great... Way to live, and what great joy in living that way! Finally, verse twenty-one. The buzzer's about to go off here, so I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. When we take our stand beneath the cross of Christ and relish His work of redemption we exalt the work of God. We exalt the grace of God. But if we add works of the law, if we add human performance, if we add religious ceremonies to the gospel, we are saying Christ died for no purpose. It was a big mistake. It was a colossal error. For Jesus to die on the cross We didn't need it We can make it on our own That's what we're saying When we deny justification by faith Apart from the works of the law Christ offers salvation as a free gift And everything that needs to be done For our salvation Has been done in Christ by God When Christ lived a sinless life He is our righteousness And died as a substitute. He was condemned. The the invitation is extended to everybody, to everybody, to come and believe that gospel. John chapter 6, verse 35 I am the bread of life, which comes, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's election, folks. And whoever comes to me will never be cast out. My business in my thinking is not election. That's God's. My business is to announce whoever wants to come can come. Whoever wants to be saved, you come to the cross and you will be saved. Jesus will not reject you. That's his promise. So if you're here today and you're depending upon infant baptism or adult baptism or this church or that church to be saved, it ain't going to work. It's not God's way. You come to Jesus as a helpless sinner. You believe that he died for you and took your judgment upon himself. You cast yourself at the foot of the cross and you will receive mercy. You will be forgiven. You will receive everlasting life. If you want to know more about this, talk to myself, talk to Pastor Dan, talk to a Christian friend. That is our message. That is the glory of our message. And remember that justification by faith is the foundation of a transformed life let us pray Father this is your truth maybe parts of it are hard to grasp but we don't have to understand everything to believe that it's your truth what a gracious God you are what a loving God you are to send Jesus to be our savior and I pray God that your spirit would move in hearts that may maybe are here in this room who have not trusted in you that even right now They will cast themselves upon your mercy because whoever comes to you and seeks forgiveness and seeks grace will receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.